Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. We're going to take up two incidents on Tuesday of Passion Week as Jesus is in Jerusalem, arousing a lot of opposition and being tested by the hypocritical religious leaders. The first incident is the first incident is when Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, whether the Jews should do that or not. And the second was the question asked by the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead. Did it exist? We'll start with the first issue first. Should Jews pay taxes to the Roman government? We have three parallel passages, Mark 12, 13 through 17, Matthew 22, 15 through 22, and Luke 20, 20 through 26. The parallel passages are pretty close. Mark and Matthew point out that disciples of the Herodians came along with the disciples of the Pharisees to test Jesus. Luke says this, that the people who were who sent forth these disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, those disciples were exact were were actually spies, and they watched him and sent forth spies, which feigned themselves to be righteous, that they might catch Jesus up in his speech. In other words, they were not only up and up, they were spies. Uh, the only other difference, well, here's one, here's another difference, is that in Matthew, Jesus called his questioners hypocrites. In Mark, he called them hypocrites. He said that they were showing hypocrisy. In Matthew, he said they were, he perceived their wickedness. And in Luke, he says he perceived their craftiness. We put that all together and we see that they're wicked, crafty hypocrites. And one last difference in Matthew, it said that once Jesus had beaten them in the debate, that these disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians left him and went their way. But in Luke, it says they were not able to to catch him up in what Jesus was saying. And so they held their peace. They shut up, couldn't say anymore. But you see, the differences are quite minor. So let me go to Mark. And we will read the whole passage, relevant passage in Mark, starting with chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. Now the they is the religious leaders. We'll see here that the Pharisees and Herodians had gotten together to come up with a scheme in order to trap Jesus. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and defer to no one, for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus told them, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, here's one difference that I didn't mention between Mark and Matthew. It's a minor difference, but it might be instructive. Mark says, Tell us, should we pay or should we not pay? They made it personal. Should we Jews pay or not pay? And that was a big burning issue of the day. It had split the Jewish community between whether they should suck up to the Romans and pay them taxes or whether they shouldn't pay them taxes, those nasty pagan Romans. So in Mark, the Pharisees and Herodians say, should we pay or should we not pay? Matthew says, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay? Just kind of a generic objective type way of putting it. But in Mark, we see the detail that they had made it personal, which means if Jesus had said, yeah, no, you shouldn't pay, 
then they could accuse him of a pacific act of disobedience to the Roman government, a pacific act of treason. They could go to the Roman governor and say that he just wasn't talking like he was in a classroom saying, I don't think it's lawful to pay taxes to the Romans. He was saying, I, I don't think you ought to pay taxes to the, to the Romans. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22, and we will discuss the various We'll discuss various issues in the passage. First of all, you know who the Pharisees were. They were the upholders of the law. They were the teachers. They were the lawyers. Or I should say they were the, the scribes, really, were lawyers. The, and, and many of the Pharisees were scribes. But Pharisees were a, a school of religious thought, and they were very strong on the law. And as a result, they were very, fairly, very zealous for Yahweh in the Old Testament and Moses, in addition to their Pharisaical traditions, whereas the Herodians, the scholars think, were a party that were loyal to the Roman government and felt like the Jews should suck up to the Roman government as much as possible so the Romans wouldn't come in and smash them and that the Jews should pay tax money to the Roman government. The theory is, since they were called Herodians and the Herods, the whole Herod family, from Herod the Great to Archelaus' son to Herod Antipas to Herod Philip II, all of these rulers of the little principalities in the Holy Land there, they all were Roman officials, and they were very loyal to the Roman government. So here you have two groups of Jewish society who hated each other. They got together in secret and plotted and figured out a trap that they could spring on Jesus so they could get him nailed. And Luke, by the way, says that they did this so that they could deliver him up to the rule and to the authority of the governor, which is Pontius Pilate. In other words, now they're switching from any talk of religion. They're not trying to catch him in religious issues and trying to get him for blasphemy. That's already failed. Now they're going to try to get him for political sedition, which, of course, was ridiculous because Jesus never once in his ministry said anything against the Roman Empire. Not once. So what was the trap that the Pharisees and the Herodians came up with? If Jesus said, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees and their sympathizers, of whom there were many, they would hate him. Jesus could have been taken up for trial to the Sanhedrin and say, it says, this guy uh, is, advocating, is advocating submission to the pagan Romans. And how about all those people in Jerusalem who had come in a few days the Sunday before, this is Tuesday of Passion Week, the Sunday before, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, the king, the king. Hosanna means save. God save the king of the Jews, you know, and oh, oh, now he wants us to submit to the Romans. What kind of a Messiah is that? Here's what Clark says. The answer was difficult when it is considered that multitudes of the people had begun now to receive Jesus as the promised Messiah, who was to be the deliverer of their nation from spiritual and temporal oppression, and therefore had lately sung to him the Hosanna. If then he should decide the question in Caesar's favor, what idea must the people have of him, either as zealous for the law or as this expected Messiah? Of course, the Messiah is going to care about the law, and, and here we're going to say, ah, we don't care about the law. We're going to pay taxes to those pagans who, who Caesar's claims that they're gods. But now, on the other hand, Jesus has said no, uh, we, I don't think it's okay to pay taxes to the Caesar, to Caesar, then the Herodians would hate him, and the Romans would then likely try him for treason. So this is a pretty good trap. They had to, they had to plot their trap secretly because Jesus was too popular among the people. If they had gone out and gotten the people angry, those people would have rioted in favor of Jesus, and that would have provoked the wrath of the Romans. So they had to, to do this quietly, and they would have to come up with something that would 
get Jesus nailed by the words of his own mouth. Now, as I said, the uh, Jews, Jesus' enemies had shifted their strategy from, from trying to trap him with religious questions. Now they're trying to trap him with political questions. And the answer was quite difficult here because the Jews themselves were divided on the issue. Some Jews refused to pay the tax, as the NIV Study Bible says. And they said that paying the tax showed that the Romans had the right to rule. Not to mention the fact who likes paying taxes. But on the other hand, not paying taxes would disturb the Romans and get the Jews in trouble. So there's your, there's your basic problem. Now, you notice the Pharisees are not directly engaging in combat, in verbal combat with Jesus. Jesus had just given them three parables, the two sons, parable of the two sons, that's the first parable, the second parable, the vineyard and the tenant farmers, the third parable, the vineyard of the marriage feast, the parable of the marriage feast, and all three of those parables, parables had an obvious point. God is going to take away the nation of the Jews from the Jews. And they'd had enough. They weren't going to try to argue with Jesus anymore. He'd beaten them time and time and time again. So this time they're going to try to try to secretly trick, trick, trick him. And with hypocrisy. Because you notice they came up and say, Teacher, we know. Let's see, what did they say? Let me find it here. We know you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. But Jesus says he perceived their malice. He perceived their hypocrisy. They were Uriah Heap hypocrites. Oh, you're so truthful. You know the way of God. You don't show partiality. So instead of direct confrontation by the Pharisees, now they're trying to use obsequious hypocrites to catch him off guard. Verse 18, as I said, Perceiving their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? So Jesus says, Bring me a denarius. This is the coin that was used to pay taxes to the Romans. And he said, What image is on it? Well, actually, here's how one of those coins looked like, according to my NIV study Bible. A denarius was the common Roman coin of that day. And on one side, it had a picture of Emperor Tiberius, the third Roman emperor. And on the other side, an inscription in Latin, which said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, that would be Caesar, excuse me, Augustus Caesar, Octavian. And you notice that Octavian is called the divine Augustus. So right there, there's blasphemy on the side of this coin. So Jesus avoided the Pharisees and the Herodians' trap. He distinguished between Caesar and God. He said, look, we're not going to give religious homage to Caesar. We're going to pay him his taxes. We're going to give him money. That's for the natural realm. That's for the political government, but as far as the kingdom of God, the spiritual government, we're not going to give him idolatrous worship. We're only going to give that to God. So Jesus was actually rebuking the Romans at the same time he was getting himself out of the trap. He's saying, look, we'll give Caesar his money, but we're not going to give him our hearts. It's kind of the way I feel like when I pay my taxes every year with the American government, the, the government which has codified sodomy and called it marriage and has murdered over a million babies a year. I don't really feel happy about paying those taxes, to be honest with you. But I'll do it because Jesus said to do it. But I don't worship the American government. I don't hate it like the leftists do. I don't, I don't hate the country. Well, let's put it this way. I hate the government. I don't hate the country. But the government stinks. And the government is oppressive. And the government is now telling you uh, that you can't go to the bathroom with members of your own sex. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. The government funds schools which which deliberately denigrate the Lord of the universe every chance they get, brainwashing kids to their detriment. Why should I be happy about that? No, but I'll give them their taxes. 
but I, they don't have my heart because my heart's in the kingdom of God. If Caesar and the church would both mind their own business, there would be no church-state conflict. You know, the Middle Ages, the whole story of the Middle Ages is the two-sword theory, Pope Galatius in the 5th century. And how does that work? Well, the, the, the secular government has one sword and the church has the other sword and they both wield their swords in their own spheres, but all for the good of the church and all. Well, and then, of course, the secular government got in a fight with the pope and then Henry IV, uh, the political leader, got had to bow down in the snow to Pope Gregory VII, idolatrous popes that claimed that he was the Lord of the universe because he was the vicar of Christ. And all of that stuff is just totally unnecessary. If the church had stuck to its business and quit, quit and, and had refrained from owning lands and leading armies and running court, civil courts and that kind of stuff, and if the government would stay out of the church's business and quit telling us what we can believe and what we don't have to believe. If the church and the state would do that, there would be no trouble. They would live together in peace and harmony. So this is what Jesus said here is very profound. People went away amazed. Well, they should have been amazed. This is very profound. What Jesus did is he avoided a false dichotomy. So these disciples, these spies, went back to the Pharisees and the Herodians who sent them, and that was the end of that little test for Jesus. Let us continue then in Mark chapter 12 verses 18 through 27. This is the story of the Sadducees quizzing Jesus on marriage in heaven. Let me start with verse 18 and read it all the way through. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves his wife behind, and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, so the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be, since the seven had married her? Jesus told them, Are you not deceived, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly deceived. Now let me take that last phrase first. You are badly deceived. The resurrection of the dead is an important doctrine. The Sadducees didn't believe in it. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the, of the dead, you are badly deceived. And I'm thinking particularly of some hyperpreterist heretics, some of whom I got engaged in deadly theological combat with at one time. It's a pretty scarring experience. They are badly deceived, folks. This is one of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And there's, there's something we can learn about the, the resurrected state in this passage. Now, notice that we get this detail from Matthew 22, the parallel passages. This is the same day. This is Tuesday of Passion Week, right after Jesus had given them the three parables that said that Jesus, that God was going to take away the kingdom from the Jews. And this was the same time, right after the Pharisees and the Herodians came and asked about should the Jews pay tribute to tax to Caesar or not. Now, it says the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's what they're noted for. They also 
don't believe in anything miraculous. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe that there was a heaven. Let's read some more. Let, let me tell you some more about the Sadducees, some quick facts. This is from the NIV Study Bible. They represented the wealthy and sophisticated classes. They were located largely in Jerusalem. The, the administration of the temple was their primary interest. They were small in number, but they exerted powerful political and religious influence. As I said, they denied the resurrection. They accepted only the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, of the, Old, of the Hebrew Scriptures. They accepted only those five books as authoritative, none of the rest. And they flatly rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. And, of course, the Pharisees loved the, the so-called oral tradition. Let me give you some more information about the Sadducees. This is a quote from Easton's Illustrated Dictionary. The origin of this Jewish, Jewish sect cannot definitely be traced. It was probably the outcome of the influence of Grecian customs and philosophy during the period of Greek domination. This, is, of course, is after Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic culture had gone all over the Middle East. The, fir the first time they are met with is in connection with John the Baptist's ministry. They came out to him when on the banks of the Jordan, and he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So... The Sadducees have already been called vipers. They weren't any more pleasant than the Pharisees were. Easterns goes on to say, The next time they are spoken of, they are represented as coming to our Lord and tempting him. He calls them hypocrites and a wicked and adulterous generation. This is in Matthew 16. And also right here in Matthew 22, he calls them hypocrites. The only reference to them in the Gospels of Mark and Luke is they're attempting to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection. That's where we are now which they denied as they also denied the existence of angels. They are never mentioned in John's gospel. There were many Sadducees among the elders of the Sanhedrin. They seem indeed to have been as numerous as the Pharisees. They showed their hatred of Jesus in taking part in his condemnation. They endeavored to prohibit the apostles from preaching the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 2 and Acts 4 and Acts 5. They were the deists or skeptics of that age. They do not appear as a separate sect after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They were professed materialists, as Adam Clark says. So there's the background on who Jesus is dealing with. Now, the hypothetical, well, the question they pose of Jesus sounds like a hypothetical to me. I'm sure it was a hypothetical question. It's hard for me to believe that a woman could marry seven men and not have children by her unless she was infertile, in maybe. But... So I, this this is a this is a trick question. This is a, a lawyer's question, a hypothetical question, and the question referred to the Leverett Law. Levir is Latin for brother-in-law, according to my NIV Study Bible. The purposes of the Leverett Law was to protect the widow. Now the Old Testament law back then it had one it had several goals, but one of the main goals was to make sure that the family lines did not die out. They wanted to keep the family lines intact so they could so that the the, the tribal distinctions would remain intact so that there would always be, always be 12 tribes of Israel. That was the type of the 12 apostles of the church. And the law wanted to keep those tribes together so you couldn't alienate property out of your tribe. And here's an example here that we didn't want, uh, if a woman, if a man died and left his wife and didn't have any children, his seed would die out and his family line would die out. And pretty soon that would cause a mess. And if, she, if his widow married outside of the tribe that would not help him any his name would be gone and so the Leverett law says that the man's brother who would carry on his family name 
is to marry his widow. Now, this is in the Pentateuch. Let me read you that. That's Exodus. It's, uh, where is it? It's in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. This Remember the sin of Onan? He spilled his seed on the ground instead of carrying out that duty. He didn't want to have a baby by his, to carry to, for the brother to carry on his brother's line, his deceased brother's line. He wanted rather to keep all the family wealth in his own line, and so that was the sin of Onan. But that, that's not the way it was supposed to be. Legally, you're supposed to provide seed for your deceased brother, provide descendants for your deceased brother. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And again, that was the purpose of the law, to keep keep his name from being quote, blotted out from Israel. So this is the Levirate law, and this is what the Sadducees are asking about. Now, remember, the Sadducees don't believe in any other scriptures except the Torah, and Jesus very carefully only uses the Torah to answer the Sadducees to prove that, yes, there is a resurrection of the dead. So Jesus, unlike theologically liberal Protestants, believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Because we'll see here in these parallel passages, it says, Moses wrote unto us. Moses said, have you not read in the book of Moses? This is in Matthew 22, verse 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? And then he quotes about the burning bush, which was spoken unto you by God. So he says that Moses is speaking to you, and God is speaking to you. Therefore, Moses is speaking as if God were speaking. In other words, the scripture is inspired and inerrant, which is not the main point of the teaching, but which is something needs to be brought up, given the disrespect that so many Christians have for the scriptures these days. Now let's discuss the trap the Sadducees were trying to spring on Jesus. They asked this question. Now, Jesus has two options. Well, he has three options. First option, he can deny that there's a resurrection of the dead. That would get him out of the problem of the absurdity of a man having, a woman having seven husbands in heaven. And how do you handle that problem? So that would, that would solve his immediate problem if he said there was no resurrection of the dead. Well, of course, he's not going to do that because there is a resurrection of the dead. But now if Jesus affirms the resurrection, he would then have to explain his way out of the absurdity of one woman having seven husbands. And to boot, this would anger the Sadducees. So Jesus is, he's going to make the Sadducees mad because he's going to assert the truth of the resurrection. He's also going to mention angels in heaven, by the way, and the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, so that was the second way he was going to offend the Sadducees. Now, there was a third option Jesus could take. He could say he didn't know. Well, that would make him look weak in front of the people, and of course, Jesus always had an answer for every question that was put to him, so that's not a live option. So he's going to have to affirm the resurrection. There's really nothing else he can do, but he's going to have to deal with the problem of how can one woman have seven husbands in heaven? Now, the rabbis back then generally held that the first husband would be the woman's husband in the resurrection. I guess first come, first served. First in time, first in right. And the last six husbands were just going to have to do without. But that's not what Jesus says. He tells his Sadducee opponents that they don't know the scriptures. 
which is sort of a slam. They don't know the scriptures because they don't know of the resurrection. Well, how is he going to use the Old Testament scriptures to prove that there's a resurrection? Well, he's going to quote Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, which he says, which is the, the place concerning the burning bush. Let me read that to you. Exodus 3, verses 2 through 6. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and thus appeared to Moses, in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he, God, said. Remove the sandals from your, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he, God, continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's where Jesus proved that there was a resurrection of the dead, because he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Not I was, but I am. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still existing, and I'm still their God. So there was Jesus' answer. There's another scripture, too, Exodus 3:16. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is still their God, which means they still must be in existence. And since they've died on earth, that means they must be existing in heaven. Now let's discuss a few things concerning this doctrine of the resurrection and dead. First of all, it says there's not going to be, Jesus said there's not going to be any marriage in heaven because angels don't marry and, and we're not going to be like, the, we're going to be like the angels and angels don't marry. So we don't have to worry if, if somebody, for example, has is a widower and he remarries. When he goes to heaven, he doesn't have to worry about two women fighting over who's going to be <laughs> who's going to be her husband because there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Now the next question rises: Was well, there going to be any sex in heaven? Well, the scripture doesn't say. And since sex is usually connected with marriage on earth, and since sex is also pretty closely related to procreation, and there's not going to be need to be, for there to be any procreation in heaven. Most people say there's not going to be any sex in heaven either. But then, of course, then the question reminds me of that song, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. Well, I can imagine why people who have a happy sex life would say, well, I'm not so sure I want to go to heaven. That seems like that's a downgrade. Heaven's supposed to be better than earth. Well, all I can say is, it reminds me, I had a friend of mine, two friends of mine one time, and one of them was saying that, there was going to be sex in heaven. There just wasn't going to be marriage. And I thought about it. I said, That's, is that what the scripture says? Well, actually, the Bible never says that this passage right here never says that there's not going to be sex in heaven. It says that we're going to be like angels and unmarried. And if if we're like angels in more ways than just being unmarried, then that means we're not going to be having sex in heaven. But if the comparison is just on one point, that you're not going to be married like an angel, well, in, in that case, that leaves open the possibility that one might be having sex in heaven, but with whom now? You know, how's that going to work? Well, I don't know. This is all speculation, but I remember after this friend of mine started making these wild speculations, I'm sitting there with slack-jawed. I'd never heard of anything like this. My other friend said, well, you're going to stay away from my wife in heaven. <laughs> so, apparently, he's still thinking in earthly terms, I guess. But anyway, that's just wild speculation. Who knows? Now let's look at the parallel passages here, and we've got to pick up a few differences. The Luke passage adds this, The sons of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they are accounted worthy to attain to that world. But they that are accounted worthy to attain to that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry 
nor are given in marriage. It doesn't really add anything except that it, to, in order to attain to the, res, to the world of the resurrection, you have to be accounted worthy. And, of course, there's only one way for that to happen. You've got to believe in Jesus. Otherwise, you're not going to get there. Now, there's one phrase in Luke, in the Luke passage. This is Luke chapter 20, verse 36. It says, Neither, for neither can they die anymore. Talking about people who attain to the resurrection of the dead. They neither can die anymore. The reason I like this verse is because years ago I had a friend tell me that it is possible for people to fall and sin again once they get to heaven, which I thought was horrendous theology when I heard it. But I couldn't answer well, this is the answer right here. I wish I'd have thought of this verse at the time I was presented with this unique doctrine. It says right here in verse 36, they neither can die anymore. Well, if you sin again, once we go to heaven, if we sin, if you can sin, the wages of sin is death and you're going to die. But this verse right here in Luke 20, verse 36 says, neither can they die anymore. People in heaven that have attained to the resurrection of the dead cannot die anymore. No more death, no more sin. That means you can't sin in heaven. And, of course, the theological argument is then. He was trying to say, in order for you to be free, to have free will, you've got to have the choice of good and bad, which is philosophers debate this all the time. But, no, you don't have to have a, a, a choice to do evil. You can still be free. For example, in heaven, you're not going to have the choice to sin. But are you going to be robots in heaven? Are you going to freely worship God, even though you don't have the option to not worship God, you're still going to freely worship God. Freedom does not mean that you have to have an, a bad alternative, a good alternative and a bad alternative, so you can choose the good alternative. That is Arminian nonsense. It just ain't true. God is free. Nobody's forcing him to do anything, but he doesn't have a bad choice. He doesn't, he doesn't have a, he, There's no way he's going to choose anything bad, but he's still free to do the good all the time. So, anyway, that's little theological rabbit trail. And Luke also, when Luke quotes, or Jesus quotes the passages in Exodus 3 about the burning bush, he says, God is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Means all who believe in him live unto him. And he's talking about eternal life, life in the resurrected, resurrected form. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. So all the saints who've gone on before, they're not dead, they're living. They're resurrected, or they will be resurrected, I should say. I assume that right now, before the resurrection, they have uh, spiritual bodies, just like you see in all these out of these near-death experiences. You see a body that kind of shines and kind of, you know, it has a little bit different properties. But basically, people can look at it and say, oh, yeah, I know who you are. This is what I assume uh, is happening with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there's one other little point here in Mark. It says that God spoke saying, I am God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Excuse me. In Mark, it says in chapter 12, verse 26, But as touching the dead that they are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In Matthew, chapter 22, verse 31, it says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? So Mark says it was spoken to you by the book of Moses. Matthew says it was spoken unto you by God. Well, you put those two together, that means the book of Moses is God. God is speaking through the book of Moses. And there you have the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. All right, one little minor detail here in the Luke passages. It says Moses showed in the place concerning the bush. 
Moses, when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses called the Lord, the God of Abraham, and Jacob, but in Matthew and Mark, God said, I, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The way you reconcile that is, is Moses called God the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by quoting God. Because when God speaks, when God says something, Moses is saying it. So Moses and God are conflated. That just not only harmonizes the passage, it shows that Mo, when Moses wrote, he was speaking the word of God to the people who were reading it. That's the way we ought to take it, too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with that. those two attacks by the Pharisees and the Herodians about paying tribute to Caesar and about the attack of the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead. We will take up the fateful events on Tuesday of Passion Week again in the book of Mark in the next audio. We will start in the next audio with verse 28. Before I leave, notice Luke adds one thing. They dared not say anything more and ask him any more questions, which just goes to show that Jesus had shut them up once again. He was so much smarter than them. He had so much more knowledge than them. He had more courage than them. He was really an amazing figure of history if you just look at it from a human point of view. All right, so we'll shut it down here. Until next audio, we'll start with Mark 12, verse 28. I hope you enjoyed this audio.